Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision, brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision and recorded by Air Zalay, the audio Internet reading service of Los Angeles. My name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I'll be your host this evening. Now, we have a really great show tonight. This is one that I think that many people are very interested in, and we're going to be talking to two people who have low vision, but they have been very successful in terms of finding employment. And I know, as an eye doctor myself, whenever we would see children who have low vision, that was really the first question parents would always say. Do you think that my child is ever going to be able to get some type of job? Do most of your patients who have low vision, when they get older, do they have to depend on food stamps to live? So tonight we have two really very, very wonderful guests. Uh, first, we have Marja Byers, and we also have Vicki Prayan. So welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you very, very much for being on tonight. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, yes, yes. Well, I have to go ahead and give all the credit to Christine Shaken, who had told me that she was doing the research to find some people who would be very good for this program tonight. So let's begin with you, Marja. Can you tell us a little bit about your history? I know that you actually were born with a vision problem, but it really wasn't immediately known early on in your life. Is that correct? Correct. Because I was the youngest of four kids and three of us were about a year and a half apart, my mom was very busy with three kids in diapers for a couple of years. And um, I was almost five by the time they realized we were in a fish ladder observation room up on the Columbia River. And my mom kept saying, look at the fish, look at the fish. And I just kept saying, what fish? All I saw was a, a kind of a green murky wall. Oh. I had the opportunity as a sighted adult to go back to that same fish ladder viewing room. And then I understood why my mom panicked so badly. Um, it, the fish were very obvious. I had about a three-foot salmon right in front of my face, and I couldn't see it. Oh. So. The doctor had to gradually give me correction because he knew if he corrected me all the way, I would reject it because it was not what I had known. Um, by the time I was three, they, I was never fully correctable, so I was very much low vision. was nine when my doctor realized that my lenses were not only starting to detach, but they were, they, they were um, the little fibers holding them into place were stretching out, which is common with Marfan syndrome but the fibers were also snapping. So he realized at that point I would most likely be a blind adult, which is what my parents were told, though nothing really proactively was done. And I did what most kids with low vision do. I decided to fake my way through through being a teenager, and most people had no idea that wow. I was as severely vision impaired that I, as I was. And part of the problem with hypermobile lenses is that anytime you move your head, that shifts where your lens is. So if I could see a, a chalkboard for a few seconds, it would go away, and I, I couldn't see anything on a chalkboard. I, I could never read a chalkboard and um, didn't didn't have good um, accommodations because of that issue. But sheer determination, by the time I graduated from high school, got a massage degree, I knew I could do that without sight and ended up getting a hospital job that led me into working in labor and delivery um, where women go to have their babies and was taught by a wonderful um, nurse teacher how to work in a sterile environment, how to open a sterile room and keep it sterile, even though I couldn't see very well. And um, in that job, in my by the time I was 22, I was very past legally blind, even though I didn't realize it. Um, by the time I went to the ophthalmologist and the tech said, what do you see down at the end of the hall? I said, Biggie is down there somewhere, but oh, I can't even see the light. So I was I was quite blind. Um, they removed my lenses, and with the use of contact, shockingly, I was eventually corrected to 2020, which was never supposed to happen in my life. So wow. that gave me a taste of 
having vision, seeing colors that I had never seen because the peripheral edges of your lenses filter out light and color. There are shades of red that I didn't see until my lenses were removed and um, eventually learned how to drive. So that gave me the opportunity of understanding how sighted drivers think and how they don't think. Oh, um, my goodness. That has been a huge advantage for me. And then I lost my ability to, to wear my contact lenses went in because of extreme irritation. I could only wear them two to three hours. Ophthalmologist said, you developed giant papillary conjunctivitis from overwear, and you can't wear them anymore. So I literally walked in, being 2020, and being a driver, and I walked out with a field of vision about 20 degrees and legally blind. So it was completely abrupt. Oh, my goodness. Wow, you you really had all extremes, haven't you? <laughs> yes, nearsighted to very very far sighted, and just a, a, quite a gamut. It's been interesting. Wow. Well, Vicky, how about you, Miss Prain? Will you tell us a little bit about your your background uh, vision? You were born with low vision. Uh, I I don't really know. No one was ever really sure how much I could see because um, at six months I was diagnosed with retinoblastoma, and by the time I was two and a half, I had lost both eyes, and uh, that was pretty much it. I know that I could see um, light and at least some color because I dreamed in color until I was about seven. Oh. Um, and I could see, in, in my dreams, I could see bright lights and I could see these these people and what they were wearing and it, all that kind of thing. And um, I don't remember anything about color anymore, but I've always had a really unusual sense of what goes with what and, and how how they fit together. My brother used to build um, model cars when we were kids, and he would always ask me, okay, how should I paint this car? And, and you know, what? <laughs> and, and I would come up with these really weird-sounding combinations, and he would try it, and it was always really cool. He was just thrilled. So. Wow. Can't explain it, but there it is. So, um, well, I've, for you, Vicky, and and uh, were there other people in your family who had the retinoblastoma cancer of the eye? Um, oddly enough, no. And my daughter has been fine, and so far, all four of her children are fine. So, don't know where that came from or where it went. I'm just glad it went. <laughs> well, and then I do. Uh, know that you did graduate from Xavier University and later got a master's degree. And how was it for you, as you might recall, learning Braille as a very young child? Was that something that your family was very supportive of, or was it something that they they almost tried to hide that you were blind and needed to read Braille? Because we see families of each type. I was fortunate in that regard. Um, my parents knew absolutely nothing about blindness or any kind of visual impairment. They had never encountered a, a blind person. They didn't know anything about Braille. But um, I grew up in Cincinnati, and about two years before I started school, the Cincinnati Public Schools started a program for um blind children, and they, they had two classes. They had one that was for people who were pretty much totally blind, maybe some light perception, and then they had another class for other kids who had some vision, and they were taught large, using large print. Um, we learned Braille, and I honestly don't remember a darn thing about it. <laughs> I remember um, just sitting down reading books, and I, I don't remember the process of, of you know, how, how it happened. Um, I started in the first grade, and that was it. I've been using it ever since. And when did you become introduced to computers and technology using programs such as JAWS or other programs for people who are blind? 
I started using a computer, well, let's see, an actual computer that I used probably in around 82. Um, before that, when I was at OSU, I saw a um, one of the early, early Kurzweil machines. The thing was almost as big as the, the table it was sitting on. <laughs> yes. And yes. it spoke like this, but by goodness, it could read. <laughs> yeah. So I... it was oh. it was a, an amazing new thing. It didn't help me much because it only spoke English, and most of the things I was trying to um, to read. Uh, most, most things were in other languages, so it wasn't too great. But the the thought that oh my gosh, you know this is this is a huge stride. Where are we going to go with it? And look at where we are now. You know, at at what time in in your life did any of your parents or a teacher or a counselor ever start to talk to you about? professions in the future, did that subject ever come up or was that something that came after you graduated from high school and applied to Xavier? Um, when I was about four, I had a chat with my father. I can, I can remember this, and I told him that when I grew up, I wanted to be either a nurse or a teacher. Now, I don't know why I wanted to do either one because I had uh, met some nurses when I was in the hospital or went to the doctor but as far as I know, I had never met a teacher, so I don't know. And he informed me that, well, you know, being a nurse is going to be really difficult because you have to do things such as measuring medications. You have to get the right amount into a syringe before you can give a shot. And you have to be able to see um, colors to help diagnose things or, or make notes, and you have to be able to write in charts. He had all these <laughs> all these reasons, and by the time he was finished, I was convinced, well, nope, that's not the way I'm going. So I decided that day I'm going to be a teacher, and I never changed that really. I've, I've worked at other jobs off and on, either part-time or um, between teaching jobs, but um, I started in in grade school, actually, tutoring some of my, my oh. fellow students, so it's just, um, hey, that's, that's what I'm doing. Well, that's wonderful. So you never had any doubt that you're going to be working and earning money and uh, just living a, a regular life. That's what I assumed, and... As I said before, my parents didn't know anything about anything, and we didn't have things like IEPs in those days. This was in the, the 60s. Yeah. Um, and um, so they they had no idea that this was something I wasn't going to be able to do or whatever, or they'd probably try to talk me out of it. <laughs> wow. But and, um, and, it, it, and, was, it was very positive. Gosh, that's wonderful. And would you tell everybody what is your current position? It's very impressive. Um, I am currently the executive director for ACB of Ohio. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. That is wonderful. One of the things that I immediately noticed is that uh, both of you women are extremely eloquent. You're very good speakers, and I see that that adds to a lot of your success. And, Marja, what about you? At what particular point in time in, in your life did you ever start thinking about working or a job or anything like that? Did that topic ever come up with you and your parents or your teachers? Well, it, primarily with my family, because I was the youngest and I was not as accomplished at doing the things that my siblings were accomplished at. I didn't get as good of grades because I couldn't ever see a, a blackboard, a chalkboard. But one thing that it pushed me on that I have people comment now is I have friends who comment, you have an incredible memory. Well, when you have to remember what the teacher has said is they've written things onto the board to try and get it written down on paper, you it forces you to develop, to develop a really good audio memory. 
I could remember what the teacher said to try and get get my work done. But my parents really didn't have much high hopes for me. They really felt that I floundered, um, that I didn't do that well in school, even though I actually did, and um, was on honor roll and did get straight A's several times. But it was just kind of ignored by the time I came around. When I was in high school as a senior, vocational rehabilitation for the state came through the high schools to identify any students that they felt might become permanently disabled, and they felt that I qualified for services. So at that time, Voc Rehab was well enough funded that um, the counselor I was working with said, what do you want to be when you grow up? We'll pay for it. Tuition, fees, books. Uh, it's a much different day in voc rehab than how things are currently. And the one thing that I knew I was good at, the one thing that I felt I could do if I completely lost my vision, which was kind of the plan from the time I was in third grade, that I knew I could do massage therapy. I have a real knack for anatomy and physiology. Medicine, medical field has always appealed to me, so I, I soaked it up. So I came from a family of teachers. Both of my parents were teachers. My two sisters got teaching degrees. My brother taught at the national level um, teaching cadastral surveyors uh, through the federal government. So teaching was kind of a normal, natural part of our lives. And it's interesting because in talking with my brother, I said, you know what? Clearly, all of us are teachers. We continue to teach even though that was not, I never got a teaching degree. I never got a degree. Um, I just felt that school was so frustrating that the thought of having to go through school, because I didn't have the concept of being supported through school, frankly, it terrified me. So by finding a job in the medical field, having nurses that believed in me, asking a whole lot of questions, doing a lot of research, and that's really what started my love of research. I find out about medical conditions, and even though I wasn't a computer user at the time, I was surrounded by medical books, so I could look up different things. And actually didn't really start using a computer until later in my career, probably about 2003 is when I started using a computer as a sighted person. So I didn't need any technology to adapt. Um, and then when I very suddenly lost um, so much of my vision, and that's one of the really peculiar things about the way that my eyesight is now, is that my combined central acuity is about 20-25, but my field is about 12 degrees. Um, so it's kind of an unusual form of blindness, but I am a Zoom text user and I started learning Zoom text when I started working at Blind Skills. I started, actually, I, I started in 2011 as a sport group member, and that's where I finally found the community that I lost when I lost my job. Um, when I was told that I couldn't work at the hospital anymore during my exit interview, the human resources manager actually said to me, Quite frankly, with your limitations, you are so disabled that no one is ever going to hire you, which kind of spurred spurred me on because that made me mad. And I thought, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to prove to you I can do this. And um, through the Oregon Commission for the Blind, working with my counselor, I couldn't see anything that I could do outside of doing hospital work. That's what I had done since I was 20 years old. So it was kind of hard for me to conceive of what else I could do. And during a vocational assessment, which was a a six-hour assessment, trying to find uh, identifiable transferable skills, what are your strengths, uh, what are areas you want to avoid, what are areas of interest. And at the end of that six hours, I was asked if I would be interested in joining their team um, to do vocational assessments. And frankly, I was so beaten down at that point, I thought he was kidding. It took me two months to realize he was serious, and I did do training for that for um, 13 months. But because you have to do ways testing, which is basically IQ testing, and I don't have any kind of a psychology degree, I couldn't get a psychologist to back me for doing ways testing. 
But the one thing I learned how to do is to commute from Salem, Oregon, up to Portland, Oregon, in multiple ways, and to have the confidence to do that and to get up to Portland and travel to multiple vocational rehabilitation offices and sites, uh, which was huge for me. And I started using ZoomText a little bit then, um, and then after I stopped doing assessments, I ended up volunteering at Skills as a research and office assistant. And after two weeks, my voc rehab counselor at the Commission for the Blind said, would you be interested in doing a job trial? So I did job trial for a while, and eventually B.T. Kimbrough, who was our um, previous executive director, came to me one morning when it was he and I in the office and said that he intended to retire as executive director and he wanted me to take over, which I had a real problem with because, well, all I could hear was blood wishing through my ears because being a director of anything I never felt should be part of my life. I didn't think it would be part of my life. And I just said to BT, you do realize that my personal email address is peon forever, right? And he kind of chuckled. He said, yeah, we, we need to talk about that. Um, and it took him about a year to convince me that maybe I am a good person for doing what I am. And I tell people, well, I went to God University. I have had so many forms of sight loss and sight gain and variations and so many different issues that it makes me able to relate to a whole lot of people on a whole bunch of different levels. And it, it seems like I'm walking down the right path where I'm going now, which makes me very happy. Well, Marja, it really seems to me that, boy, you are very, very determined. And even though there were a lot of people who kind of got in your way and were not encouraging you fought on and you succeeded, so congratulations. That is really amazing. Vicki, did you encounter many similar experiences where people were really not supportive or they maybe suggested that you won't be able to uh, earn a degree or find employment? Did you run into that? I ran into it periodically, but um, as a, as a, a kid... I was I was the oldest in the family, and it never occurred to me that I couldn't do what my younger brother and sister were doing. So um, I learned along with them how to do things like riding a bike and using roller skates, and we played tag, and it, you know, um, and the other kids in the neighborhood seem to just accept that, hey, you know, she can play cards, and she can do this, and <laughs> nobody ever said, you know, hey, you're you're blind, you can't do any of this. They even would um, have little competitions to see when I got a, a new deck of cards or if we, somebody got a new game, who was going to read the stuff to me so I could braille it, and it was, oh. <laughs> it was really cool. So that in, just sort of... Um, set in me the idea that if I want to do it, I can. Um, so whenever I encountered somebody who tried to tell me that, uh, oh, you're, you're not going to be able to do this, my comeback was, um, it, you know, I, I don't know the word can't. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. just not happening. Um, even after I graduated from Xavier, um and was looking for a teaching position, and that started to look kind of, oh, geez, is this going to happen? Um, even my parents started questioning this, and they were telling me that, you know, maybe I should look in a different direction and uh, perhaps think about getting some kind of job with the federal government because, you know, government employees have all kinds of stability Little did they know. <laughs> um, and, well, that wasn't what I wanted to do. So, you know, I I kept kind of just reaching out and putting out feelers and decided, well, you know, maybe what I need to do is go to graduate school and get another degree and kind of expand some of the things that I can do. And it worked. Um, so wow. here I am. 
what what recommendations do you have, Vicki, for some people who are in college or maybe they're in high school and they do want to find a career but they really don't know? What kind of advice can you give them so they could sort of become exposed to different types of jobs and maybe be on a path of trying to find out what might be the best career for them? That's a, a, a tough one, especially these days, because I look at these these kids, and, and you know, if you're if you're under forty or so at this point, your kids, <laughs> um, and things are so different from what they're doing in school. I, they have so many things that that I never even dreamed of um, using a, a, a computer for researching things um, instead of having to have help with somebody else who could look at things in the library and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I think really what is important is to, um, to find as many opportunities as possible to try different things because you're not going to know if you're good at it if you haven't experienced it. And if you think that it's something you're going to like and you haven't tried it, you know, you, you don't know. You might decide that you want to go into, um, I don't know, race car driving, let's say. Forget, forget, the, forget the vision thing. Um, and you go and try it and discover that, oh, I don't like speed. That just, ooh, it doesn't agree yeah. with me. So, you know, I, I think people need to experiment a little bit, and there are so many opportunities now with job fairs, and um, a lot of high schools are requiring that um, kids in, in certain grades, especially juniors and seniors, do some kind of um, internship, do some kind of community hours, just Doing, doing volunteering. I know when my daughter was in high school, and that's been a while now, uh, since she now has a high schooler, oh. um, <laughs> <laughs> she had the opportunity to um, intern for, I don't know, it was something like six weeks with um, my vet, as a matter of fact. She, she loved animals, and she, we always had a zoo at our house, and she got to go into the office and see how they did things and what they did and learn about vaccinations and watch some surgeries and, and that kind of thing. And um, it kind of determined her that, well, you know, she really liked animals, but that wasn't the way she was going to go with it. Pets, okay, but a job working with them? No, not so much. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that that's so good, though, because... There's so many things that you don't know until you actually experience it. Marja, what kinds of suggestions do you have for uh, some young people who are searching for careers? What if somebody has never given anybody a massage? Uh, how, how can they begin to experience what massage therapy is like? That's a really good question. And, Vicki, I agree. You know, things are so different now than they were back when we were in school. Um, so many more things available that we never would have even dreamed of. Oh, my um, gosh, yes. It, it, things are so different. Even just the process for applying for a job is different than it was. Um, one of one of my friends, John Dashney, and people who know Friends in Art may be aware of John, he was a Salem guy who said multiple times, you know, when I was a sighted person, I was mediocre at doing a lot of different things. It took blindness to prove to me what I'm really good at doing, which was writing. He was a phenomenal writer. Oh. And that was born out of going home to tell his son's stories and he had retinitis pigmentosa. And as he continued to lose vision, one night his, his son said, because he was starting to kind of make up stories because he couldn't really read anymore, and his son said, Daddy, I know that you're not really reading that book because you're holding it upside down and you're reading it backwards. Oh, uh-huh. And he said, but that's okay, Daddy, because I like your stories much better, which led his son to take him for show and tell. When the teacher said, would you talk to the kids down the room, you know, down the hall, and he ended up touring five continents 
and telling his stories all over the world because he just he he, he it was just an experience that happened and i really think experiential learning is so valuable because it gives you a really big a much more clear idea is this something that i really want to do or did it just sound like a good idea and certainly I've had the opportunity to work with summer work experience program uh, students in the office, and boy, those kids blow me away because this young lady could do things on a computer with her own artwork that I didn't know was possible. I Boy, she taught me a lot, but when I saw something she had written after she'd been in the office, um, being around the blind community, which was very new to her, um, her family had recently immigrated from the Philippines, so there is no blind culture. And her ability to be able to sit in the office and listen to my friend who has Usher syndrome, she and I talking about being blind and her being deafblind, and she picked up on so many of the conversations and had a greater understanding by the time she left as far as what we're capable of, learning how to build self-confidence, how important it is when you especially as a young adult to really believe in yourself and gain that confidence and i know in the last year she has gained exponentially which is thrilling to me that some of the seeds that were planted came from being in the office um uh, getting out there and experiencing doing extracurricular things that might be really pushing you that you thought you might not like to do our former director is now very active in a theater group in Kentucky, and one of the reasons he needed to retire as being our editor for Dialogue Magazine, because he is so busy doing theater groups and reading groups and is absolutely loving it. So you can even find a new passion when you're 70, and I, oh, I've yes. seen it happen time and time again. And I, I told a friend of mine who was just, recently diagnosed as now being legally blind. And she said, I'm not going to be a very good blind person because I've not been very good at being sighted. And I said, now, wait a minute. You never know what kind of rabbit you're going to pull out of the blind hat because I've uh -huh. seen it time and time again where people find things like me. I've found a whole new life that I never dreamed of having, of being, of going to Washington, D.C. and being able to go to Capitol Hill and talking to lawmakers, I never would have done that as a sighted person. This has pushed me, and I've pushed myself much harder than I would have, I think, if I had remained a sighted person, honestly. That's right, and, and look at both of you. You both are experts in being able to help people who are either low vision or blind. Your experiences and what you have done to succeed in life now makes you an expert, and you can help others, and that's why this is so wonderful, this call. But we have quite a few people on the call this evening, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to open it up to questions that they may have. So if you are on the call and you have a question, press star 1 and introduce yourself and who you'd like to ask the question to and go right ahead and ask your question. Okay. Dr. Bill, this is Tom from Wyoming. Yes, how are you, my good friend? <laughs> Tom? Mark and Vicki, this is a wonderful, wonderful show tonight. Uh, I've got a comment, and then I'm going to ask you both the same question. I started losing my vision about halfway through my career as a forester, and uh, uh, I didn't know this about myself, uh, but it, it, uh, when that happened, I, I had always been a very uh, focused and a very uh, big-time overachiever, if you will. But when I started losing my vision after I determined that I was going to move on and keep going, I started making people nervous around me. And I didn't know this. My wife's the one that told me that, that they couldn't believe what I could do and how I could do it and on and on and on. And I had a passion and a focus for what I was doing that I never really had when I still had my vision. And so I really, the second half of my career when I was low vision, 
I was way more productive then than I was in the first half when I could see. And so my question to both of you is, did you ever get any feedback from people around you that you really did make them nervous as to, you know, how you did things and how much you were able to accomplish and on and on and, you know, things like that? Vicki, you want to answer first? Well, it's interesting that, <laughs> that that's the very first question. I think that over the years, um, I just kind of gotten so accustomed to people saying things like, oh, you're such an inspiration, or I, I can't believe that you do that. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I just kind of, big deal, you know, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. Well, yeah. Um, ACB Ohio became involved with an international professional fellows program a couple of years ago, and we hosted a couple of ladies last fall here, um, as a result of which I went to their countries to um, see what they were doing with the projects that they were working on. To uh, they, they were both working um, in the disability arena, specifically with people uh, with vision problems, um, losing vision, already lost vision, that kind of thing. And so in May I did something that I would never have thought of years ago. Um, I traveled solo, and I usually travel with somebody, a friend or family member. It's more fun that way. But um, I went to a couple of countries where I spoke no 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 bit of the language and um the the first place was Albania and in Albania blind people are a whole they're I would say they're living the way blind people lived in the US maybe 150 years ago they never travel alone they for the most part don't even know what a white cane is, much less use one. Some are employed, but they're usually pretty um, low-caliber jobs. Um, and I was, it, it was a really, it was very, if, if you'll pardon the expression, eye-opening. Um, I use a guide dog, and so, of course, at least a few times a day, I would have to take the dog out. And the people in the hotel where I was staying were just, I, I, I was waiting for somebody to have heart failure because I not only <laughs> walked out the door by myself and walked down the street to where she was relieving, uh, but the trash can was across the street from the hotel. And I walked across that street all by myself and people would come running out of the hotel and, you, you want to come this way? The hotel's over here. And they were just freaked out because I could do this all by myself and safely. And they just, it, 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 I was only there um, not quite a week, so I'm, I, I don't know if they ever really got used to it or if they ever really would. It just, and, and it just, um, it was, it was interesting to me because I don't, it, it's something I, I don't usually pay attention to. You know, how do, how do people perceive what I'm doing? And it was such a, um, so, so shocking in, in some ways that, you know, this is something I take for granted and they were really, really nervous. Wow. That's great. I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Marja? Vicki, you, you really said it. Things that we take for granted every day shock and amaze and kind of scare people. And, and I mean, something as simple as just crossing a street in downtown. And mm -hmm. I've heard people whisper to each other, wow, she's absolutely amazing. And I want to say, I do this every day. It's not that big of a deal. And then I think, you know, to them, it does seem like an insurmountable hurdle. And it, even going to Portland, so many of my friends that are blind, vision impaired, just 
really don't think it's a good idea for me to be traveling in downtown Portland by myself. There is a very large homeless population. But you know what? For the most people, for the most part, those are the people that are watching out for me. I think most of them see me as vulnerable like they are, even though I don't consider myself vulnerable. But I've I've had homeless people come to my defense, and I, I don't see some of the details that other people might see, and maybe that's what puts them off so much. But I think so many of the things that we do, even five of us flying to Washington, D.C. together was really challenging being the person who had the most sight. And that's when I decided, you know what, today I have far less sight and we are going to accept all the help we can because I don't have enough sight to help five people. You know, we've, we've, we've got to be able to figure this out on our own and try and travel as a group, which is kind of challenging. So honestly, I cannot fathom doing international travel. Well, of course, I've never done it. And um, let alone try to put my dog onto an airplane for any length of time. <laughs> and then well, trying to find a relief area. It's got to be challenging. <laughs> thank you. What I found, ladies, in, in, in your answers are kind of where I'm at with this. Uh, but uh, what I found out early on, I had a friend that was a psychologist. And... Uh, He said, really, if you give up on yourself, no matter what your problem is, you're going to soon find that people are going to start avoiding you. Even even your own family members are not going to give you the the respect and the time that you would have uh, unless you, you know, uh, persevere and, and charge ahead and do what you need to do. And so you need to be your own best advocate, I think, you know. Well, and I think, too, sometimes we aren't aware of how people perceive us, and uh, and we don't, we don't think about it. I, um, I remember the first time I went somewhere internationally, um, I was on my way back home from Colombia, and I was sitting on the plane, and this, these two women got on, and they had the seats next to me. Um, and this was back in 1976. So, <laughs> um, and they're they're talking down to me, you know, that 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 poor girl sitting there. And I heard one of them say to the other, "They shouldn't let them travel alone." <laughs> And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be traveling. <laughs> and and yet, when it was time to fill out the menu, and the flight attendant um, came to me, and I could speak to her in her language, and we had this nice conversation about the menu and about other things, and the two of them had no clue what we were talking about. Their attitude totally changed. It, there, there was suddenly a, a whole, a whole different uh, perception that, my gosh, she can do things we can't. Wow, that is just really, you know. And and there was suddenly respect in the way they spoke to me. Oh, that's great, Vicky. I, Vicky, before you, we go, and thank you, Doctor Bill. Uh, I, when my company bought me a Xerox Kurzweil reader back in the early '80s. So that kind of ages me as well as you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Let's see. Who else has a question next? Dr. Bill Leslie. Yes, Leslie. Please go right ahead. Thank you. I have a question for Marja and and both of you ladies. What inspiring? I'll say it. What what inspiring (laughs) stories? You know what. I know we don't like to hear that all the time, you know, and I travel a lot also, and, and you, you do get that. What an inspiration you guys are, you know, but you guys really are. I mean, what what wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Bill, for having both of them on. It's just been a pleasure oh. to get to know both of them a lot better. I know them pretty well, so both of them, but, it, you know, I learned I learned a few more things about both of them tonight. So thank so you. So your question was what inspires so my question them? Is, no, my question to Marja is, um, are you practicing your massage? And if you are, are you taking clients in your house, or do you, do, you know? Because my my profession is fitness, so that intrigued me about you. So, well, and the sad thing is, as a chosen profession, I did not know until I was thirty five that I had Marfan syndrome, 
and because of the joint issues with Marfan and the very consistent physical injuries that are seen by physical therapists with massage therapists, and they get them a lot, I never would have been able to sustain, even though, well, because I have very long fingers, big hands, they work beautifully for massage, but my joints never would have been able to sustain it. Um, and, and because of Oregon state laws, even when I got my license in 1978, um, there were about eight pages of state codes that you have to comply with in order to have a massage business. So, um, now what a lot of people do is they get portable tables and they go and do in-home massage, which has an element of risk to it. Um, and it works a lot better if you're a decided driver. Right. <laughs> Unless you've got right. somebody who can, who can drive you. But um, I've, I've started to come to the conclusion that um, I've, I've done home visits with people when the commission couldn't get to somebody who, an older person who needed to have tactile markings done, talking about lighting, contrast, all the basic things. I can't do mobility with somebody, but I can talk about those things, help figure them out what they need in their own home. Um, and I can do that kind of stuff. But I've decided that that's probably not the safest thing. And the other problem that I find is once you've visited a senior citizen who's recently blind, they want you to keep coming back because they're isolated and they're lonely. Correct. And, it, and it's kind of dangerous to, to kind of get into that. Um, there's... I often say blind people are really lonely because I, I get calls from all over the country that, you know, these are folks that I know and sometimes they just need somebody to talk to and that's okay. You know, if that makes you feel less isolated, bring it on. I think it's a great idea to be able to pick up that phone and say, hey, I can call Marge. I know that voice. Yes, and I also encourage you to tell others who may be feeling a little lonely that they could join our group. And we have these great discussions, and it's a, a really great way to learn, and it's also very nice socially. So thank you, uh, Leslie, for that question. Uh, I think that I heard another woman who might have had a question. Is there another question out there? Yes, this is Tanya from Kentucky. I um, Let's see here. How do I put this? I am currently studying Braille transcription. Um, I am low vision, and I found out just this year at the age of 45 that I will lose all of my sight eventually. Um, the problem is, is I'm fighting with vocational rehabilitation. They are fighting me every step of the way. They don't want me to work at home. Um they don't want me to do Braille transcription. <laughs> they just don't want me to do what I want to do. And so I guess my question is, I'm sorry, I'm really trying not to cry. I was crying just listening to you guys talk because I know I can do this. And I just need somebody to believe in me enough to say, yes, you can do this and help. You give me that hand up. So I guess my question would be, what can I do to stop fighting with vocational rehab and get them to cooperate with me? Well, um, I don't know about the get them to cooperate with you part. <laughs> um, when I was um, graduating from high school, I had a counselor who thought my idea of going into teaching was the most ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. Blind people can't teach unless you go to a school for the blind. And he was really, really obnoxious about it. Um, and he wanted me to do something like maybe be a, a legal secretary, the last thing that interested me. Um, and uh, he finally told me, you know, unless I did what he told me to do, I wasn't going to get any kind of support um, financially or otherwise from um, the rehab folks. And I was fortunate enough to be able to tell him, um, although I didn't use that kind of language, where he could put it um, because I had scholarships and grants um, in order to get through college. Um, 
And so I, I guess what I'm telling you is if it's what you want to do, go for it. And if it means that you have to, you know, keep convincing them that, that this is what you're going to do, um, if if you the, – the best thing you can do for yourself is have a plan in mind. What do you want to do with that Braille transcription? And how do you – um, how do you want to go about it? And, you know, if if you want to talk about it, feel free to call me um, because I've done Braille transcription and I've taught students who were working towards that um, certification. And so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers, but I might have some ideas um, to help with what your ideas are. Well, and, and one of the one of the things I'm wondering is, and I know departments of rehabilitation will have certain jobs that fit within their defined. These are acceptable jobs for you to go into, and it kind of sounds to me like maybe braille transcription is not on that list or doesn't conform to that list. And I'm curious as to why not. You know, it, to me, it seems like kind of a natural fit, particularly if it's something that interests you, to be able to work from home and do Braille transcription. Um, and my guess is it's, it's part of it is within, because I did vocational assessment and I saw the list of, the, of what the state of Oregon would approve of for different jobs, and some of them don't really make sense for a lot of people. Um, what I'm wondering is, if can you get help from a school like Hadley? I wonder if Hadley has a transcription course that you can actually. Yeah, actually, no. Hadley uh, can't do a certification because they're not accredited. That's where I originally oh, learned okay. to read Braille. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, the NFB has a certification program, and that's where I've been studying since January. Um, but every time I have moved a step forward, vocational rehab is like, whoa, wait a second, you can't do this. And it's been such a battle. And I, my boys are getting ready to turn 18. We're going to lose a significant amount of income when they do. And I'm like, look, I need to do this. And they basically... I don't want to use the word threaten because that's not really the correct term, but they told me today that, look, you need to do what we say or you're not going to get your bioptic driving gear. And I'm like, without that bioptic driving gear, we can't survive. We live in the middle of nowhere. Sorry, but that's a threat. That is a threat as far as I'm concerned. Do what we say or we will withhold. That's a threat. Is it? Is it because you're you're wanting to work from home? Are you looking at doing small business? I have always, always, always worked for myself. I have always worked from home. Um, both of my boys are on the autism spectrum, and I homeschool them because we couldn't find a good school. Mm-hmm. And so I've always worked from home. And then... Um, I started having so much trouble with my eyesight, and they were like, look, you're not going to be able to homeschool. You're not going to be able to do all these things you've done before. And, you know, we've made it work. My boys actually took Braille courses, and they learned to read and write well. And, you know, they helped me label things at home. And so, you know, my home, you know, I'm not lonely. I I reach out. Socially, I talk to people by phone, and when I could drive, which I'm not supposed to right now, but when I could drive, I would get out and meet people, and now they're trying to tell me, no, you can't do that. You can't work from home. We have to see X, Y, Z. We have to make sure you're making a wage, and I'm just like, I'm tired of fighting with someone. Could I, this, is, this is Mary Lee Turner. Could I jump in here? I used to be a vocational counselor. Yes, please go right ahead, Mary Lee. Okay. And um, it, I know Marja quite well, and Marja, it was great to hear some of your story that I haven't heard before. Oh, but, thanks, Mary Lee. Um, as uh, 
based on my years of experience working with both the Florida Commission for the Blind and the Oregon Commission for the Blind, they, by law, can't tell you. I mean, I, I can't quote the law, but, you know, if I would say it, the, the more work you have done in preparing your reasoning why this will be a, um, uh, what's the word, a, um, you know, a suitable job fit. Suitable isn't the right word. I'm retired. Now. Viable. I've forgotten. Tom, Tom from Vermont. Always say yeah. viable vocational goal. Yeah, yeah, thank you. See, I've, I left the field a long time ago. Right, so. yeah, viable. But, but the more you can go in with documentation that shows, you know, what it takes, you know, how you're going to deal with um, the, ob- the foreseeable or at least that they see are the obstacles because what, what they want is they want a successful closure, Okay. They don't want you to come back in a year or two and say, oh, that didn't work. It was too hard. You're right. You know, I, I need to get trained for another position, another job. So if you, you know, you do their work, get your ducks in a row, and go in, and you can always appeal. Um, every state has some kind of uh, program. It's sometimes called the CAP program, but, you know, if they, you can disagree with them, and you, you know, you can, they will, the state is required to provide you with someone to support you as you are, um, you know, provide, uh, presenting a reasonable job placement for yourself. This is Tom from Vermont again. She said the CAP, the Clients Assistance Program, that's what I was going to recommend. They yeah. are your advocate, legal advocate, and every yeah. voc rehab is required to have it. So ask them for the client assistance program. Yeah, and they, they should have given you that information when you did an, your initial paperwork. Yep. It's my understanding yeah. that part of the state process. Yep. They're they required they probably, by law to give that to you. What? Yes. Yeah, they probably did give it to me. Uh, the problem is, is that I, for many years now, I've had what's called a severe print challenge, and so even large print is becoming extraordinarily they, difficult. They are required to give it to you in a format that you can access. Mm-hmm. Doctor Bill, this is Leslie. Um, yes, Leslie, I go ahead. Wanna, I want to tell Tanya. Tanya, you have some really good resources in Kentucky. You have Carla Rushaval, Adam Rushaval, mm-hmm. Patty Cox. Um, we also have a low vision affiliate there, which is KCCLV, um, which Shirley Stivers is the president there. So you should reach out to these people and ask them for some support and help. Mm-hmm. These are wonderful people in the American Council of the Blind that will help you, and um, that might help you also reach out to them. You know, um, The previous conversation... My experience was in the mid-80s in Washington State, but I know that the, the federal government changes its mind on what is a valid closure and what isn't, and yeah. sometimes they just identify something as not being valid. The big one in Washington State was they could get somebody a job at Pizza Hut, and that was a closure, but if they worked for the lighthouse, that wasn't a valid closure because it was supported, and they seemed to only towards jobs with a boss and a, and a paycheck rather than self-employment. And it might just be that the regulations they're working under, the counselor won't be awarded completing a closure if you choose self-employment. Yeah. Well, let's go yeah. ahead and let's see if we could take one more question, okay? Does anybody else have a question? Okay, well, I want to thank all of you for being on the call this evening. This is very, very helpful. And if you do have other questions or comments, what I'd like to know, would you be able to give a email address or a telephone number that if anybody on the call has questions, that they could leave these questions with you, and then we yeah. can forward it to uh, Vicki or Marja. 
Go ahead. They can send it to me at director17 at ccovi.org or or um, let's talk low vision at ccovi.org. Okay, and can you repeat them again slowly? Thank you. Okay, it's it's director17 at ccovi.org or let's talk low vision at ccovi.org. And if any of you missed these email addresses, I will send out show notes after this call. Very good. Thank you and very, very much. And anyone who wants to can find my contact information at acbohio.org. Um, we have all the all the contact information on our website, so feel free to contact me. Thank you very much, Vicki. And Marja? And I, and I can be found at blindskills.org. Blindskills.org. Yes, blindskills is one word. Very good. Well, again, I want to thank uh, both of you ladies very much for being on the call. This is very, very helpful information. And we'd also like to thank uh, Mr. Dick Burden from the Airs LA for recording this. So we should have this up on the website within a few days. So we hope that you'll join us next month when we talk more about low vision. Thank you very much, and good night, everybody.